In all warfare, there's a time to fight and there's a time to flee. And Paul says, when you're tempted by sin, when you're tempted, flee. But when you're attacked by Satan for doing what's right, stand and fight. Ephesians 6.10. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm looking straight ahead of me, Jan Jackson, welcome back. Jan just got back from Africa, was there on ministry for about three weeks, 18, 19, 20 days, so it's great to see you. I know Jeff has got a big smile on his face, so that's good. Uh, we're finishing 1 Timothy 6 today, Lord willing, we'll open 2 Timothy next week. Paul wrote the first letter to the Timothy uh, at the church in Ephesus because they were having severe problems at that local church. Timothy was the pastor there, and there was an enormous number of false teachers who had risen from within the church. These are not external uh, false teachers. These are members of the church themselves who were teaching doctrine contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had written Timothy, among other things, to tell him how to refute these false teachers and proclaim a true gospel of Jesus Christ to this church. These false teachers were ignorant, and yet they were arrogant. They didn't know the scriptures, and yet they were highly impressed with their own opinions. And of course, we know people like that. Pastor Roger talked about that this morning. And the people we are most impressed with those opinions of are the ones that we look in the mirror every morning. And these false teachers, them is us. They were ignorant of the scriptures, but they were very, very proud. And they were not preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were preaching a salvation of good works and human pride, and they exalted themselves and not Jesus Christ. And as a result, their teaching had created enormous problems in the church, fighting and bitterness and envies and conflicts, and I'm better than you are, and all these other kinds of things. But their biggest problem was that they were motivated by money. And they prostituted the gospel for cash. In the name of Jesus, these false teachers at this church in Ephesus had twisted the gospel in order to make money because they loved money more than God. And they used religion in order to obtain what they valued more than God's grace, which was cash. So Paul instructs Timothy in this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you turn to verse 6, verse 6. He says, but godliness, Timothy, actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. You can underline that word contentment. We talk a lot about it. It's not very commonly practiced in our culture. Verse 7, for we have brought, say it, nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either, right? You come into the crib with nothing and you go with, leave in the casket with nothing. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For 
This is the most misquoted verse in the Bible, probably. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the principle. The love of money lures some people away from God, and they are then destroyed by their own desires. The love of money lures some people away from God, and they are then destroyed by their own desires. Let me, let me unpack this verse for you a little bit. I want to talk about three Ds. The desire, the deception, and the destruction. Steve Cole wrote these three Ds, and I like them, so we're going to use them. The desire is they want to get rich. Loving money simply means valuing money more than other things. In this case, obviously valuing money more than you value God. The person who loves money pursues money not for altruistic purposes, but for self-centered purposes. A person who loves money wants to spend it on themselves. And the love of money, as Paul is describing here, is really idolatry. And idolatry, very simply put, is an idol is anything you value more than God. Anything you value more than God. And of course, the number one idol in all of our lives is always the same. It's what looks at you in the mirror every morning. It's self. Self is always what we worship. And of course, Satan got Eve to that when he tempted her and said, you can be like God. You can be God. What a nice deal, right? Worship yourself. So the love of money is idolatry because it's valuing money more than God, which is, of course, a very close cousin of coveting. And coveting, of course, is desiring something that God didn't give to you. He gave to somebody else. And you think God made a big mistake because you really want that, deserve that more than they do, right? That's coveting. So the desire is they want to get rich. The deception is they fall into temptation and a snare. Fall into, the Greek here, is literally means a pit, a snare, a pit that's covered, and an animal falls in that pit and gets trapped, right? And it, it literally captures them in that pit. Uh, the Swiss Family Robinson is a movie from the 60s. Most of you were alive then, I can tell. <laughs> Remember, remember when, when, the, when, they, when they dig the pits for the tigers, the tiger, right? And the tiger goes and falls into this pit. That's the picture. It's literally a pit that's covered over with, with branches and brush. So it looks like really just forest floor. And you walk through and phew, there you drop down 10 to 12 feet. That's what he's talking about. So this fall into, it's a pit that you get trapped in. And, and it's a sudden, it's unexpected. And of course, it's deadly. When you wander away from God's path of righteousness, of course, we're set up for a stumble and a fall. And when you believe Satan's lies, you will fall into Satan's trap, just like Eve did. See, money lies when it promises you happiness. Our culture is inundated with advertising that in attempts to influence you to always do what? Get more. Because our culture lives and dies on more is better. Yes? How many people say, don't buy this. You really don't need it. You actually could spend the money on something far more meaningful than buying this blank blank from us. I haven't seen that ad yet. 
But money promises us if you buy this widget, you will be happy, you will have status, you will have these things. Money is not an evil. It is a neutral entity. It's our attitude toward it that creates the problem. But the most important thing money cannot buy is an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we have the desire, they want to get rich. Two, the deception, they fall into temptation and the snare. And three, the destruction. It says it plunges men or women into ruin and destruction. The word plunge, interesting word, is a word picture of a boat uh, that is filled to the brim with fish and it's beginning to sink. And it was used when uh, the disciples had fished all night, they hadn't gotten any fish, and Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and they threw their nets on the other side of the boat, and they were loaded with fish, they brought the fish in the boats, and the boats began to sink. That's the Greek word for the word plunge. It's a boat that's overloaded, the water's right up to the gunwales, all you do is you wind up with a little bit of waves, and you plunge to the bottom. And it says that plunges men into ruin and destruction because they've wandered away. That has to do with getting lost. When you chase after money, it takes us off the path. It takes us off God's path and we become confused and disoriented. And the word pierced here is very graphic. It literally means to put on a spit. So you can roast it over a barbecue. You get the picture? You ever seen chickens on a, on a spit and their rotisserie? That's the picture. Who's on the spit? The person who's greedy and wants more. They put themselves on the spit and they get roasted, right? So it's very dramatic word picture here. Paul says, let me give you God's perspective. You came in the world with nothing. You're going to leave the earth with nothing. So don't get too attached to stuff. It's just stuff. What do you need? Food, clothing, shelter. And the key to this whole passage, this particular section, is the word contentment. Contentment says whatever God chooses to provide is what I need. Wow. Some of us are having problems with God right now because he's providing us with what we think we don't need. Or he's not providing us with what we think we do need. And so we talk with God about that, don't we? Say yes. We all talk with God about that. God, I think you should, etc., etc., etc. Contentment says that whatever God chooses to provide for me is what I need, and that's enough. Because he's enough. Those who desire to get rich, who chase after money, who worship money, who make an idol, are in essence discontented with God's provision. They're forever drinking and forever thirsty because they're drinking from the wrong stream. That's the problem. Paul tells Timothy in verse 11, But, Timothy, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now, man of God is a person who belongs to God, who's called by God, set apart for God, possessed by God, loyal to God, one who obeys God, and one who speaks God's word to the world. A man of God or a woman of God are not their own. They serve at the pleasure of who? King Jesus, right? They're like a soldier. Those of you who've been in the military, when you go in the military, there is a thing called an oath of office, right? 
And you swear to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign or domestic, and obey the orders of the president, etc., etc., etc. After you swear in and you are enlisted or an officer in the military, you belong to the military in the sense that they can tell you where to go, when to go, how to go, how to do, when to do, how long to do, when to stand up, when to go to bed, when to take a shower, etc., etc. You serve at the pleasure of those you have sworn allegiance to as a soldier. Interesting. 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul likens us to soldiers and he tells Timothy, Timothy, no soldier in active service, that means they're in the military, entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life so that they may please the one who enlists them as a soldier. So a soldier, loyalty is to their commanding officer, even though they're in civilian life, right? You see them driving down the road, sometimes these camo trucks, etc. They're not going to in and out like you are. They're on under orders. They have a specific task, even though they're here, they're operating under a different command structure. Same thing for you and I. We are operating under the command structure of Jesus Christ the King. And as people of God, we obey the commands of God in heaven, even though we live here on earth. The term man of God appears over 70 times in the Old Testament, only twice in the New Testament, and both times it refers to Timothy. Moses was called a man of God. He was set apart by God in order to speak for God and represent God to the people of Egypt and Israel. Elijah and Elisha were called man of God multiple times. There's obviously many of the Old Testament prophets were called man of God. And Paul tells timid Timothy, because Timothy was pretty timid, that he was a man of God too. The only time in the New Testament this is said of him. God had set Timothy apart to speak God's word to a church that was following false teachers. And this church at Ephesus needed to hear God's word so they could obey it. And God said, Timothy, you're the one who's going to bring my word to this person. However, in a broader sense, every single one of us in this room, as a matter of fact, all believers are called to speak for God and are called to represent God on planet Earth. 2 Timothy 3.16. Most of you know this because you memorized it when you were in Awana, right? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Now, Timothy is the primary recipient of Paul's writing. However, this applies to people of God across the board. Actually, it applies to everyone who follows Jesus because all men and all women who follow Jesus are people of God and they are called and equipped to do God's work on planet Earth. And that means every single one of us in this room. Say amen. amen. You've got a job description. We are all equipped to do God's work, and the way we're equipped to do God's work is by diligent study, teaching, and application and obedience of God's word. We just saw that in verse 17. So what we want to really focus on today are what are the character traits, what are the characteristics, the habits of a man of God or a woman of God? What are they known for? There's actually four of them, but we're going to unpack this, Lord willing. First of all, a man of God or a woman of God are known by what they flee from. Secondly, they are known by what they follow after. Third, they are known by what they fight for. And fourth, they are known by what they are faithful to. Let's pick up the first one, verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God. Here's the principle. 
God's people are called to flee from temptation. God's people are called to flee from temptation. God commands Timothy, a man of God, to flee, to literally run away. And of course, this implies, it's a present continuous, an ongoing continuous action. Keep fleeing, keep running, don't stop, make it a habit to run away. The Greek word here is the word for fugitive. And a fugitive is someone who is always running away, right? They're a fugitive. They're running away on a continuous basis. That's the word picture here. We are called to continually be running away and fleeing from temptation. Now, flee does not mean amble, mosey, wander. It means run for your life, as if you were being chased by a wild animal that wanted you for lunch. You flee when it's mortally dangerous to stay where you are, right? And there, of course, there are multiple things that can kill you if you don't run away. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. God commands us, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, stand and negotiate at midnight with sexual immorality. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee fornication like Joseph did. Remember Joseph? Young man, 17, 18, very, very wise, filled with the Spirit of God, Hired by Potiphar to run his house. Potiphar's wife, probably an arranged marriage, probably much younger than him, takes a liking to Joseph and she propositions him day after day after day after day. And it says he tried to stay out of her way so he wouldn't even be around her. Well, that's a pretty good thing. Separate yourself from temptation. And one day she grabbed him and said, lie with me. Now that's the direct approach. Right? There's not much finesse with that. And it says he left his coat and ran away. That's a pretty good idea. Don't negotiate with sexual immorality. Flee. Run from it. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 22. Now flee from youthful lusts. The best example I can think of of someone who failed to flee was Samson. Samson spent a lot of late night couch time with Delire, Delilah. And it got him blinded, imprisoned, and dead before the age of 40. Judge Israel for 20 years. We think he probably started at about 20. Not a good outcome. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The Ten Commandments begins with the whole notion of idolatry, which is valuing anything more than you value God. You shall have no other gods, what? Before my face. You shall not make for yourselves any image, any idol, anything more valuable than me. And Paul commands the Corinthians and us, don't negotiate with idolatry. Don't navigate that. Run. Get out of there. And one of the things that Timothy was told to flee from and to deal with was the very thing that these false teachers were enslaved by, and it was the idol of greed. These false teachers who were in the Ephesian church were motivated by money. And the means to more money was religion. 1 Timothy 6, 5. These false teachers supposed, they believed, that godliness is a means of material gain. So I can use religion in order to get rich. And of course, these false teachers understand and understood very clearly back then that religion is very profitable. 
Because inside the DNA of every human being is a God-shaped vacuum that's crying out to be filled. And these false teachers promised satisfaction, and they treated religion just like a business. And today, there's absolutely no change. The airwaves are filled with religious hucksters who, in the name of God, promise health, wealth, peace, prosperity in exchange for an investment, I mean donation, uh, to their business, I mean, I mean ministry, right? The history of religion is filled with charlatans who promise that for a fee, we can deliver what your soul desires, what only God can give, salvation from sin and freedom from guilt through Christ Jesus. Now, medieval times, we call this an indulgence, right? And it was promised falsely to reduce the time a loved one had to spend in purgatory if you paid a fee to the church. Well, purgatory is not a biblical concept in the first place, and so therefore the abuses of that are what led Martin Luther, among other things, to post his 95 Thesis and say, you are not saved through the church, only through faith alone in Christ alone, period. Today, we have the exact same thing. We have religious hucksters called prosperity preachers, and they don't call it an indulgence, they call it seed giving, right? And if you give the seed to them, they promise that God will multiply it a thousandfold. You give us $10, there's a thousandfold trade-off. I'm going, why don't you put the $10 in yourself then? You get the money. I don't need it, you get it. I mean, if you got this magic formula. So in the name of God, there's an enormous amount of religious charlatanism taking place in Ephesus because they were in love with money. And Paul says to Timothy, that's idolatry, and you have to deal with it. The Bible is filled with examples of this kind of behavior, and probably the number one is a prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire, and he offered his gift of divination to the highest bidder. In this case, it was King Balak of Midian, and Midian was the sworn enemy of the nation of Israel, God's people. Balaam's greed, he wanted the highest possible fee, led him away from God, led him into the arms of the enemies of God, and ultimately got him killed in the battle between Midian and Israel. He literally got pierced through as a result of his greed. When you talk about being pierced through, they put him on the spit. I mean, he was knifed. Judas, another lover of money, sold his master to the scribes and Pharisees for how much? 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave in that era. How long did he get to enjoy the money? He didn't. He felt guilt. He went and dumped it back on the temple floor, says, I betrayed innocent blood, and went out and committed suicide. You talk about piercing yourself with many wounds, falling into the pit of Satan, the trap, etc., etc., etc. Now, so Paul commands Timothy, there are some things you are going to flee from, and we are commanded to do the same thing. Now, Paul isn't commending cowardice when he commands Timothy to flee. He's simply acknowledging there are some times when flight is the best battle strategy you can employ. Remember when Jesus was born, and King Herod, a little paranoid, um, told the wise man, come back and tell me where he is so I can go to worship him. The very next night, as near as we can tell, or pretty close thereafter, God gives Joseph a dream and he says, Joseph, you take Mary and the baby and what? 
flee to Egypt because Herod's going to try and kill him. Sure enough, Herod kills all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old or younger. And so God told him, flee. That was a strategy. The Apostle Paul himself, when he was persecuted in Damascus, he was let over the wall of Damascus in a basket. The battle wall oh, in a basket because they had the gates guarded. If he tried to win out the front gate, that had him killed. Paul fled. So there is a time and a season where fleeing from things are appropriate, and it's especially appropriate when we are tempted. We are never commanded to stand and fight temptation. However, there are some people that are content just to run away from bad things. They're experts in what they're against, but they have no positive agenda they're pursuing. So Paul says the man or woman of God is not just to flee from, they're also to follow after. Follow after, verse 12. What are you supposed to follow after? Paul gives us six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Here's the principle. God's people are called to follow after godly character and good conduct. God's people are called to follow after godly character and good conduct. Now this, this, this follow after is not a passive word. It means to pursue which means to hunt. It is a word picture that means to hunt and track down prey. I don't know if you've ever seen a tracker at work. Trackers in the United States today don't generally track down wild game. They track down lost children. They're professional trackers. And they track down lost people. And if you see them work, I mean it's head down, and it's single-minded focus. They're just looking for visual cues that tells them where that child wandered off to or where that, in some cases, mentally ill person wandered off to, etc., etc. That's the picture. You are following or pursuing something, and we are to do it continually and single-mindedly. And Paul tells Timothy that the man or woman of God is to pursue these six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And they're character traits that don't happen by accident. They happen purposefully through spiritual exercise, just like working out of the gym. It takes holy sweat to get spiritually fit. It's not going to happen automatically. If you want to be spiritually fit, it's going to take holy sweat. The word righteousness here does not mean Christ's righteousness that he credits to your account when he paid for your sins. The word righteousness here just simply means right behavior. It means doing right. It means living right. It's doing what's right in God's sight. It means obeying God's word. A man or a woman of God does what the Bible says is right and avoids doing what the Bible says is wrong. And obedience always honors God. Paul says, just do right. That's the whole point of righteousness. Very practical. That's external behavior. On the other hand, godliness is an internal attitude. It's the internal motivation that produces the right behavior. Why would I want to behave right? Because I am a godly person. What does that mean? Godliness means reverence for God. It means to live in awe of a holy God. And it means to worship at the feet of a holy God that you respect and you honor, and you are in awe of. We can't worship holy God and hang on to our sin at the same time. 
It's a major impediment. The key to intimacy with God is what? A clean heart, and that comes from confession. Pastor Roger mentioned in passing today, David is sin with Bathsheba and the great Psalm 51, where he is confessing to God that the intimacy between him and God has been broken by his sin, and he wants that intimacy back with the Lord. He wants to worship holy God in spirit and in truth. And he says in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That cleansing comes from the Holy Spirit, but we have to be willing to be cleansed. It's always interesting to ask ourselves, how often do I confess my sin? And you all know the right answer to that. It's another question. How often do you sin? So when we're aware of sin is when we should confess sin. We should not ever get in the habit of living with unconfessed sin. Why would you live with cancer? Right? You would say, no, I'm not going to do this. When we're aware of sin is when we should confess it. Here's Brad's problem. I need to ask God to make me aware of it because many times I sin and I'm not aware of it. And the more I live with sin, the less aware of it I am. Until I say, Holy Spirit, please shine the floodlight on and show me my sin so I can confess it so you can cleanse me. And it's embarrassing how many cockroaches are in my heart. It's really embarrassing. But that's the whole point. The Holy Spirit wants to cleanse us so that we can have a clean heart, so that we can have a godly attitude, so we're motivated then to do what is right. Next is faith. Faith is simply, there's an old little children's song that says, faith is just believing that what God says he will do. Right? What does God say? He's going to accomplish what he says. Faith chooses to believe what God says more than what I see. That one's worth writing down. Faith chooses to believe what God says more than what I see. Faith chooses to rely on God in every circumstance of life, and I mean every circumstance of life. The best definition of faith is obviously Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11 is a biographical list of God's Hall of Fame, and it's a list of people who trusted God in the face of humanly impossible circumstances. And these people in Hebrews 11 continue to trust God even in the middle of painful circumstances, even in the middle of suffering, even when they didn't see it happen, the promise happened, because they believed that God's promise of heaven was guaranteed. Faith is a muscle that we need exercise, right? We choose to either trust God or we choose to live under our circumstances. And we all have wonderful circumstances, right? Not. Most of our circumstances are not joyful. Many are. We do have joy, and we should give the Lord thanks for that. But the issue is, are we exercising faith in God? And you do that when you humble yourself before God. You ask Him to lead you, and of course, then you follow what He says. Next, Paul says, God's people should be people who pursue love. And of course, you all know that, in fact, the first commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. So you should love God and you should love other people, but there are some things you should not love, right? 
1 John 2.15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. You know something? I could spend six weeks right here. Because we live in the world, and this place is a moral cesspool. I mean, it's a cesspool. It stinks to high heaven. But because we grow up in it and it, we live, we think that's normal. This world is not normal. Heaven is normal. This place is Abbey normal. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both. You can't hang on to God and hang on to your sin for all that is in the world. All. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. So Paul says, yes, you have to pursue love. But you have to be careful what you love. Choose to love the right things and choose to hate the wrong things. Lastly, Paul is going to give us two other things we should be pursuing. We should be hunting down and we should be tracking. Endurance and meekness. Endurance comes from our Greek word, hupomone, which means to remain under. To remain under. And it means, it, it has the picture of, of being pressed down with a weight, a, a trial a set of circumstances. And I am very much persuaded that we all carry these. We all have weights. We all have circumstances. When you look at your neighbor on your right or your left, they're carrying burdens that you have no idea about. You probably don't want to know. They don't want to know about yours either. Because they're carrying theirs. But one of the th reasons we're together is we bear one another's burdens. And the burdens that are shared are lighter than the ones we carry on our own. Paul says endurance is remaining faithful to God when you're under that pressure. And that could be illness or relationships or finance. There's all sorts of circumstances, but it says I'm, I'm bearing up under that burden and I'm remaining faithful to God. And the best example I know of in scripture is Job. Job was a man who endured. His wife did not. She said, curse God and die. Whoa, what's going to happen to you when you die? Well, it can't be worse than this. Oh, yes, it can be a lot worse than this. Job did not curse God to die. He did not turn his back on God like his wife did. He remained faithful. He questioned God, but he always remained loyal to God despite the fact that he never understood why he was suffering. For those that are enduring and under the weight of suffering and struggling and circumstances, I highly recommend you read the book of Job. I really do. It is a vastly understudied book. Most Christians who are struggling and suffering around the world will tell you that that book has provided them with more encouragement and more comfort than any other. Lastly, we are to pursue gentleness or meekness. Meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. Meekness is really selflessness. God said of Moses, God said of Moses, he was the meekest man in all the earth. Meekness doesn't think about yourself, it thinks about others. It really doesn't think about self at all. That's quite a compliment God gave Moses. So the man of God, the woman of God are known by what they flee from, temptation, what they follow after these six character traits, thirdly, by what they fight 
4, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here's the principle. God's people are called to fight for the truth while firmly grasping God's promise of eternal life. God's people are called to fight for the truth while firmly grasping God's promise of eternal life. And the word fight here refers to military battles as well as athletic contests. It, it carries the idea of contending for first place in the Olympic Games. Now winning first place and obviously the Olympic Games requires an enormous amount of long-term disciplined effort towards a very specific goal. The number one thing first place in the Olympic Games requires, sacrifice and suffering. That's why so few people will compete. It requires years, sometimes decades, of sacrifice and suffering. The word fight here is the Greek word agonizomai, and you know where that's going. It's where we get the word agonize. To agonize means to struggle. It means to contend in the struggle, to be willing to experience pain. I'm really dating myself and dating you too, but how many of you remember Wide World of Sports? Old ABC, the thrill of victory, the agony, and you remember the Yugoslavian ski jumper that comes off that thing. And the first time I saw that, I thought, he's dead. Number one, he's dead. Then I found out he wasn't dead, and I thought, there's not a bone in his body that's not broken, because, I mean, it looked like he went through the meat grinder coming down that thing. A soldier's battle, beyond athletic competition, a soldier's battle goes beyond victory defeat. It's a struggle between life and death. So Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. The Greek word there is kalos, and it means a noble fight, an excellent fight. The fight of faith is a fight worth having. How many of you have heard the old proverb, pick your battles? You can't fight all of them, although you know people that try to do that, right? They're always exhausted. They got lots of scar tissue and they make a lot of enemies. You have to pick your battles. Paul says the fight of faith is worth fighting for. It's worth giving your best effort for because it's a noble effort. It's a noble fight. Fight the good fight of faith. And of course, you and I know that the fight of faith is always the fight for truth. The battle of our culture is always the fight for truth. And truth is God's truth that's revealed in the Bible. And God's work on planet Earth and God's word in planet Earth will always be attacked by Satan. Always. Because those without Christ, people that don't know Jesus, are slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. And you and I were once slaves to sin and Satan. God's men and women, that's you and me, carry the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? Set the prisoners free. And they can be set free through the forgiveness that Jesus purchased when he paid the penalty for their sin. Satan will always try to distract and destroy God's messengers who carry the good news to the people he's kept in chains. So the gospel always is a battle cry of warfare. Because the gospel says you can be free from sin and Satan, you don't have to be a slave. The gospel says you can choose life and not death. The gospel says there is truth that you can embrace and error that you can reject based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Satan will always go to battle with the messengers of the gospel because he wants to keep his prisoners, what? Enslaved. 
Satan will always try and create doubt in God's word. And so you and I are in the battle for truth. And it's always the battle to believe what God says and not believe what Satan says. And Satan will always do the same thing. He'll do to you what he did to Eve. He'll come to you and he'll whisper in your ear when you're in the middle of very severe trials and he'll say, Has God said you're worth loving? Has God really died for your sins? I don't think God loves you as much as you think he does. Look at what a mess your life is. Blah, 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 blah. That's Satan. He's Denny's 24-7, always open, you know. Blah, 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 blah. You know what to do with that? In all warfare, there's a time to fight and there's a time to flee. And Paul says, when you're tempted by sin, when you're tempted, flee. Joseph fled and survived. Samson didn't flee and died. But when you're attacked by Satan for doing what's right, stand and fight. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, command imperative, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Resist the, in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. When Satan attacks you for doing what's right, stand and fight. But before you stand and fight, you need to armor up. Put on the armor of God before the battle, because you know it's coming. Satan's going to attack you if you stand for Jesus. They count on it. The question is, are we armoring up every morning before we leave the house? You know when you drive out the door, it's going to be a battle. And you know the very first place you get in a battle when you walk out the door? Probably what you're listening to on the radio. It might be the first thing you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you scroll over to see what's going on in the news flow. Boy, now that's inspiring. <laughs> yeah, right? Makes you feel really good about the day. The whole place is in the toilet. Well, duh, it was yesterday too. It's going to be tomorrow. You knew that already. You didn't need to read that to find it out. What we need to be doing is armoring up. We need to be in the Word of God right from the get-go. Right from the get-go. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Renew your mind, Romans 12, 2. That's the first thing out of the box. And you want to find out what it is, read the rest of Ephesians 6. We're commanded to fight the good fight of faith. And sometimes it seems as though the battle will never end. It seems like the battle is just overwhelming. And what happens is we get tired. You ever gotten just tired of the battle? I'm just, I'm worn out, you know, I'm tired. Jesus, you could come today, get me out of here. I'm tired of the battle. And the key to winning the fight of faith is to remember the last half of verse 12. It says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Lay hold of means get a grip on, grasp on to seize a hold of what? Eternal life. How many of you ever played tug of war as kids? You get a rope, right? and you try and pull the other person over, let me tell you, you better not let that rope slip out of your hands. You're going to lose that battle. Humans have a bite force 
their jaw, a bite force of 70 pounds per square inch. Have you ever been bit as a kid? Don't ask. I don't know if you've been bit as an adult. I don't want to know that. But as a kid, <laughs> 70 pounds of bite force is the human jaw. Your friendly local bull mastiff down the street from you, that dog has a bite force of about 556 pounds per square inch. That's one of the reasons why they create so much havoc. Not just all, but dogs with strong bites. A Nile crocodile, strongest bite force in the world, 5,000 pounds per square inch. 5,000. So when a crocodile grabs you in its jaws, it has laid hold of you. That's what Paul's talking about. Lay hold of eternal life with 5,000 pounds of PSI and don't let go. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to lay hold of eternal life. I want you to live every day in light of eternity and don't let it go. And the Bible is filled with people who laid hold of and grabbed hold of physical life here on earth. Cain, Lot, Esau, Saul, Samson, Ahab, the list goes on and on. People who tried to grasp temporary life. Get all the gusty you can, right? Physical life here on earth, and they lost it all. Hebrews 11 is a chapter filled with people who by faith seized hold of eternal life and lived their temporary lives here on earth in light of eternal life in heaven. And those are God's hall of fame. Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, David, Samuel. They grabbed hold of God's promises and refused to let go. You know, we've talked about this in class before. No matter how wonderful your life is now or how awful your life is now, you need to remember one central fact. Life here is temporary. Very temporary. And heaven is eternal. And Timothy is told by Paul, you will not have the endurance to stay in the battle here on earth unless you lay hold of eternal life and remember what God's promised you that is to come. Eternity is what gives us the perspective as well as the courage to stay in the battle here. Because this is not payday. This is battleground, but the battles will be over someday. Quicker than you think. When you're in the middle of pain, life seems to be so short. But everybody I've talked to on their deathbed says, man, it has just gone by. Years ago, a small boat capsized not far above Niagara Falls. That's not a good place to have a boating accident above Niagara Falls. Two men were left struggling against the strong downward current. A thin rope was flung out, and both men managed to grab the rope. Then a large log came floating by, and one man let go of the rope and grabbed onto the log because it looked so much more substantial. Soon log and man were swept over the falls, but the man who clung to the rope was saved. And that's how our lives look like and feel like sometimes. It's a life and death struggle against the currents of our culture. And the only thing that can save us is the rope of faith. Because Jesus Christ is on the other end of that rope. And Timothy is told by Paul, you seize that rope and don't let it go. 
So the man and woman of God are known by what they flee from, what they follow after, what they fight for, and lastly, what they're faithful to, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the principle. God's people are called to be faithful to God's word by living it with integrity and speaking it with authority. God's people are called to be faithful to God's word by living it with integrity and speaking it with authority. Live and speak the truth of God's word regardless of cost. You know the worst thing that can happen to you if you speak God's word with integrity? You get to go to heaven earlier than you expected. That's the worst thing that can happen, okay? The world chases after a lot of things, right? The world values all kinds of things, right? Money, sex, power, peace, prosperity, perks, health, wealth, longevity. The world values all these temporary things. However, the most precious treasure on planet Earth doesn't have its origin from planet Earth. The most precious treasure on planet Earth comes outside the created order because its origin is in God the Creator. The most precious treasure on planet Earth is truth. God's truth in the Bible. And that is a gift from God to humanity from outside the space-time matter-energy continuum. It's from the Creator to us, the creatures. And God has entrusted you and I with this treasure, and you have it in your lap. And it is the treasure of truth. Truth is precious because it defines reality. And God is the reality of the universe because he's the creator of the universe. And you and I can know truth because Jesus Christ came to embody it and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is the only foundation you can build your life on, on something that will never change. Because you can choose, right? Remember he's talking about building your house, the house of your life on the rock, or the house of your life on the sand, right? You can choose to build your life on the rock of God's truth, or you can build your house on the sand of this culture. And this culture changes its mind every 15 minutes. Uh, probably every seven minutes, right? So God says... I've deposited this precious treasure with you called truth, and you are obligated to guard it and defend it and pass it on to the next generation because Satan will always attack the truth and try and dilute it and try and destroy it. The most powerful way to protect and guard this deposit of truth, the Word of God, in your life is to obey it. The most powerful testimony that the world has as to the reality of the gospel is changed lives. Because it demonstrates the supernatural nature of the claims of the gospel. When you live according to the word of God, it impacts this broken culture because so few people do. When you live according to the Bible and you follow what Scripture says in the power of the Holy Spirit, people may think you're strange, and you are. 
but you are living a supernatural life that they do not have the power to because they're enslaved to sin and Satan and you are free. And we take that freedom for granted. And we take the truth for granted because it's so accessible. You can open your Bible and you can read it. And we're obligated to live according to it. You know, when you speak God's truth, the world who follows Satan will hate you, probably, and they might even kill you. And Paul says, not a problem. The God who gave you the truth is the God who raises the dead. No worries. The worst thing they can do is you get to go to heaven a little ahead of when you thought you were going to. Because the God who gave you the truth is going to resurrect you from the grave and destroy death. And who does he use as an example? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went before Pontius Pilate. Matthew 27. Jesus, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now that would be a very politically important question because Rome tended to kill competitors to the imperial order, right? If you claim to be a king, that was a death sentence, right? They didn't like opposition, competition. And Jesus said, I am. It is as you say. Pilate then, of course, listened to the Jewish leadership and had Jesus crucified. And you go, well, that wasn't a very good choice. Oh, it was a brilliant choice. Because three days later, what happened? God raised him from the dead, conquered sin, destroyed death. And so you and I have the promise, the sure promise of eternal life, because we will be raised as well. Hallelujah, right? Let me summarize. And then we'll do prayer and praise. The love of money lures some people away from God, and they are then destroyed by their own desires. I want you to think about that. You don't view your own desires as destructive. We view our desires as a good thing. If those desires are not sanctified by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, our desires will lead us off the cliff and do routinely. Number two, God's people are called to flee from temptation. Not negotiate with it, flee from it. God's people are called to follow after godly character, and that, of course, produces good conduct. That's the external witness to the world. God's people are called to fight for the truth while firmly grasping God's promise of eternal life. You know, if you and I knew when we were going to die, it would change our perspective, right, about what was important in this life. The truth of it is, since we don't know, we should live as if it were today. That's a good perspective to have. I could be leaving today. I hope so. Today would be a really good day for Brad to die. A really good day. It would be the greatest day of my life. I'm done with sin, suffering, Satan. Why would I not want to leave here? Think about it. You're going, well, I got all this stuff. Your stuff's going to rust when you're here or when you're not here. You need to lay hold of heaven and don't let go. Lastly, God's people are called to be faithful to God's word by living it with integrity and speaking it with authority. And when you live it with integrity, you have a platform to speak it with authority. Okay? Lord willing, next week we'll open 2 Timothy. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for attention. Know that you are much in our prayers, and um, you are much loved. 
And I'm so grateful the Lord has brought us together all these years. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.